Hi, this is Herb Kressel, and welcome to the November 2012 Radiology Podcast. Uh, this month, we'll be discussing three fascinating articles. First, I will be uh, chatting with Dr. Alex Bankier, who is our deputy editor for thoracic imaging, about a fascinating paper by Dr. Bartian de Hoop and colleagues from Arnhem, the Netherlands, on their paper entitled, Rapid Growth is No Predictor of Malignancy in Pulmonary Perifissural Nodules on Computed Tomography. And uh, this is a uh, interesting paper with uh, some uh, important practice uh, applications. Uh, then I'll be chatting with Dr. Albert DeRus, our deputy editor for uh, Cardiac uh, imaging, discussing a paper by Dr. Andreini and colleagues at the University of Milan on the assessment of coronary instant stenosis with CT coronary angiography. In this paper, they have a, a new high spatial resolution scanner with improved uh, post-processing that uh, allows enhanced depiction of instant restenosis. And then finally, uh, I'll be speaking with Professor Sangi Han uh, from uh, UC Santa Barbara on a, a novel experimental article uh, entitled Hyperpolarized Water as an MRI Contrast Agent, Feasibility of In Vivo Imaging in a Rat Model. And Dr. Han and colleagues uh, have applied a, a new method of hyperpolarization and have some fascinating images of cerebral perfusion uh, with this method. So uh, I hope you enjoy this month's podcast and we look forward to your feedback. Hi, this is Herb Kressel, editor of Radiology. I am joined uh, by my colleague Alex Bankier who is a deputy editor for Thoracic Radiology. And today we'll be uh, speaking about a fascinating and somewhat counterintuitive manuscript on rapid growth is no predictor of malignancy in pulmonary perifissural nodules on CT, authored by Dr. Bartjan de Hoop and colleagues from Arnhem in the Netherlands. Welcome, Dr. Bankier. Hi, thank you. First, as we begin, can you tell us exactly what are perifissural nodules? Perifissural nodules are, uh, in fact, a strange uh, subcategory of pulmonary nodules. In some respects, they do not even comply to the definition of a pulmonary nodule, although in the jargon and in clinical practice, uh, most people will call it pulmonary nodule or perifissural nodule. Perifissural nodule are typically rounded, more or less rounded or sometimes triangular densities that are located on a pulmonary fissure or very close to a pulmonary fissure. So the, the authors make sort of a distinction between what they call as the typical nodules that have a uh, triangular and lentiform shape and the atypical which are not clearly fissurally related but they're presumed to be in the expected location of the fissure 
And I guess the third is the non-classical, which are round or speculated and would have a more uh, worrisome uh, feature. So they studied these, and wh what was the study rationale? Why, why is this a, an item of interest? Well, the study was based on the Nelson trial or on information from the Nelson trial, which is a big joint uh, North European lung cancer screening trial. So patients included in this screening trial all were heavy smokers. And these patients were followed by CT on time point zero and one year, two year, three years and five years after that. Why would one study perifissural nodules or so-called perifissural nodules? Uh, most importantly because we see these nodules very often and so far we have been treating these nodules like any other lung nodules, meaning that they uh, respond to the criteria uh, of some recommendations and then these nodules are followed and create follow-up CTs examinations and increased radiation exposure uh, to the patients. So I think the idea to uh, look at these nodules more closely is in fact a good one. And there is some evidence or previous evidence from the literature, uh, notably from a relatively smaller Canadian lung cancer screening trial, uh, that these nodules tend to show some growth but little growth in any way in the longitudinal follow-up of these nodules, they have a different behavior than we would expect from a malignant lung nodule. I see. So, so what did Dr. DeHoop and colleagues do? Uh, what, what was their study design? So uh, they took these uh, follow-up studies from the lung cancer screening trials. They <coughs> divided the nodules that they saw on the CT images in the different categories. They separated the so-called perifissural nodules uh, from the other nodules and then they looked longitudinally at one, two, three and five years what happened to these nodules. The assessment of uh, nodule size was done using quantitative methods, so they did not just measure these nodules using calipers, but they really assessed the, lung, the nodule volume using computers. And what did they find? They found that over time these nodules uh, could change in size. Most of the nodules would stay, would remain stable in volume and in diameter, uh, but some of these nodules would change over time. Uh, they could grow, but at a certain time point the grow would be reversed and they would shrink again. They state at the end of their paper or of the result section of their paper that uh, none of these nodules for the time frame that they oversaw uh, underwent a malignant transformation. I see. So this is uh, uh, surprising. I think a lot of people would be worried about nodules in any location. Uh, now, these people were in a screening study. Do you think it would matter if there was a known lung nodule more centrally? Uh, how could you distinguish this from a, a malignant lymph node due to regional lymphatic spread? This is an interesting question because it directly points at uh, what I believe is one of the weaknesses uh, of this study and of, uh, by the way, previous studies on the subject. We are looking at these nodules, we are following these nodules on CT, 
but we do not really know what these nodules represent histologically. Uh, there is a more or less general assumption that these nodules represent lymph nodes or at least lymphatic tissue, but this assumption has not yet been proven. So if you have a second pulmonary nodule which is malignant or has malignant features, then of course a lymphatic structure near the fissure could very well be metastatic lymph node, uh, a lymph node metastasis from this ipsilobar cancer that is already there. So just from the conceptual perspective, it absolutely makes sense to not just discard these nodules as benign structures. Now, in the abdomen, which I'm certainly more familiar with, the uh, lymph nodes are elongated, but when you see them in cross-section, they appear rounded. So these in cross-section appear lentiform. Is, is it known what the basis for this difference is? It is in fact not known what the basis is, and this is another uh, potential issue. Another issue is uh, this triangular shape that they describe because uh, basically, in, to my knowledge, in no region of the body is a lymph node triangular in shape. So, as I mentioned before, we do not know what these lesions represent histologically and I believe that before we know that, uh, uh, the, the evidence is not ro sufficiently robust to draw uh, definitive conclusions. I see. So what do you think the implications of the study are? It was a very large study. They followed uh, well over 2,000 uh, patients. In fact, the total, they had uh, over 4,000 patients in the total study uh, and quite a large number of nodules. So I believe the implications for the clinical radiologists are that when we see such a perifissural nodule in a smoking patient, and there is no other pulmonary nodule in the same lobe or in the same lung, then we can kind of reduce our level of suspicion towards this nodule uh, and maybe move to follow-up uh, periods that or follow-up intervals that are longer than for isolated uh, solid pulmonary nodules. However, I do not believe that the current evidence we have from this study and previous studies is ro sufficiently robust to completely discard uh, the possibility of malignancy in these nodules, although the statistical likelihood appears to be relatively low. Thank you. I do need to make a slight correction what I said. They studied over 4,000 nodules that occurred in 1,729 uh, study participants. So it's still a very, very large study a very, very informative database, an unusual patient population to have such long follow-up. And so I think the authors uh, certainly should be congratulated for uh, wading into this uh, difficult area and at least providing us uh, some guidance. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I think this is an important incremental uh, step forward. I think from there, the next step should be probably in a smaller group of patients, but to obtain histological evidence uh, to know exactly what these nodules are, uh, because it is only with this evidence that we will be able 
to make definitive recommendations how to proceed with these nodules in clinical practice. Sure. Well, uh, Dr. Bankier, uh, thank you so much for participating in the podcast. We're sorry that uh, Dr. DeHoop was not able to make it. Thank you again. Thank you, too. Hi, this is Herb Kressel, and welcome to uh, the Radiology Podcast. Uh, today, I'm joined uh, by uh, Dr. Albert DeRoos, our deputy editor for cardiovascular imaging, to discuss a paper appearing in this month's journal entitled Assessment of Coronary Instant Restenosis with Computed Tomography Coronary Angiography. And this study was authored by Dr. Daniele Andrini and colleagues from the University of Milan in Italy. And this was a, a, a very, very interesting study, a randomized study of 180 patients who were scheduled for coronary angiography for suspected instant restenosis. And they were randomized between two scanners. Uh, one of them was sort of a conventional 64-row uh, MDCT, and the other was a newer model, uh, including a higher spatial resolution, adaptive uh, iteration for image processing, and a, a number of other uh, image processing uh, enhancements. The two groups were evaluated for image quality, the observation of problems with the stent, uh, and also the correlation uh, between uh, the MDCT evaluation and uh, intravascular ultrasound as well as intravascular angiography. Uh, and the authors show uh, that the higher resolution scanner uh, provides a, a better spatial resolution, better visualization and image quality, and better correlation uh, in terms of the d degree of stenosis. Thank you for joining me, uh, Dr. DeRoos. Uh, can you tell me why is this an important subject? So uh, let's start with the uh, clinical context of this uh, problem. Instant restenosis is an uh, important clinical issue because it uh, occurs in quite a number of patients. It has been estimated that, uh, especially with bare metal stents, the uh, occurrence of instant stenosis was about 10 to 50% at six months. So that's a large number of patients which may be affected by this problem. The problem has somewhat decreased with newer uh, stents like drug eluting stents, but still the number of about 200,000 patients per year is reported as having this complication in the US alone. So I think uh, this study is a nice way to look at an important problem. And why in particular did we decide to actually accept this manuscript? What were the strengths of it that uh, led you to recommend accepting it for publication? Yes, so um, we were impressed by the uh, study design, including uh, 180 consecutive patients. That's an important feature of the study and they were randomized and they were equal in a number of characteristics. So you can really explore how the different CT techniques may perform in comparable patients. And actually the study design led to quite clear 
results which are uh, of importance for clinical practice. I see. Now, in, uh, looking at the study, of course, the study was well-powered to look at what they called evaluability, which is a function of image quality, but actually uh, was underpowered to effectively evaluate uh, the level of difference in diagnostic performance between the two techniques. Uh, do you think this was a big problem? At this point of development of new techniques, it may be to maybe sufficient to report on the, these uh, diagnostic quality aspects before we go into a uh, clinical series showing the added value of uh, the technique. So when we know how the technique performs for diagnostic quality, we should take the next step and to include also accuracy on diagnostic problems and expand on this. But at this stage, this was a, a nice way to look at it and they also looked for sensitivity specificity for identification of instant restenosis and also for a um, correlation with a very good reference standard namely uh, coronary angiography and IVUS and they showed here also improvement in diagnostic quality so but the ultimate test would be a study powered to the number of instant restenosis and show the incremental value in terms of uh, using this improved uh, technical set of parameters. Now, Albert, the, the results are very impressive, but I did note that although they wound up randomizing 180, they started out with over 210 patients, so 30 patients. Uh, which is almost 15% uh, or so, uh, were not able to be studied, uh, largely for problems with getting the heart rate under 65 with medication even, and problems with uh, renal function. So how close are we to this being an important clinical tool? Yes, these same limitations may occur with contrast agents, for example, with invasive angiography. So dependent on the significance of the indication, people may still proceed with the procedure. However, um, the heart rate may be a larger problem because it will uh, decrease the uh, motion, increase the motion artifacts and decrease the assessment of instant coronary restenosis, and uh, this is a limitation of the CT, but that can be controlled by taking care of better protocols, using intravenous drugs perhaps to uh, further reduce the heart rate when this is a real critical issue. Now, so, I have another question uh, just to follow up on this. These patients presumably were scheduled for uh, angiography on the basis of recurrent ischemia. Uh, why do you really need to visualize the stenosis? If you've documented the ischemia already, why couldn't you proceed to uh, an intravascular uh, angiography in any case? Do you think this will really affect practice? Yes, because there is a interesting discrepancy between the degree of disease and the clinical presentation. So very commonly patients with instant restenosis are relatively asymptomatic. 
So it's difficult to assess the clinical picture and to make sure that there is a real problem in the uh, stents. So therefore, people are now trying to integrate CT morphology and CT perfusion uh, to further improve the hemodynamic significance of a presumed stenosis. And as the uh, clinical picture is often silent, uh, it may be more difficult to use the clinical signs and symptoms to select those patients for uh, invasive procedures. So I think uh, CT may be a nice non-invasive tool before you go into invasive diagnosis. It's also been shown, interestingly, maybe I can finish off with that, that that SPECT imaging, looking at perfusion in those patients, has not been shown to be a very reliable tool to uh, exclude coronary uh, instant restenosis. So the SPECT imaging part of it may not be sufficient in the clinical evaluation. So there is a real need for direct stent visualization. So uh, thank you, Albert. I was a little bit confused because the authors really utilized uh, their scanner, the newer scanner, uh, to deal with a number of different technical obstacles for uh, direct stent visualization. Uh, including the beam hardening, the motion, the geometric effects. Which of these actually is the most important? Do you think you need all of the enhancements that they used, or do you think there are one or two that would uh, drive scanner performance? As we can read from the literature, there are a number of uh, obstacles in CT imaging for direct stent evaluation. And Probably spatial resolution is the most critical part of it, and this may lead to blooming artifacts, which may be due to two phenomena, first to beam hardening, but also due to the partial volume effect. So second problem may be motion artifacts, and respiration is now well controlled for, but still there is residual cardiac motion that uh, can affect the uh, image quality and freezing the motion is also still a critical part for improved visualization. And we don't have to forget some other phenomena like the so-called geometric effect. That means when the stent is angulated to the plane of orientation, you can have increased artifacts. It's much better when it's perpendicular or orthogonal to the plane of imaging. And a final point, which is also critical, especially in stent imaging, is the use of good, good injection protocols to have optimized intravascular contrast enhancement. And so these patient-related factors interact with the CT technique for optimal imaging of this complicated problem. So it's not one isolated thing. The whole chain of selection of parameters patient-related, CT-related, should be optimized. Thank you. Well, Albert, thank you for a very uh, interesting uh, discussion of uh, this uh, promising manuscript. And uh, uh, any further thoughts on next steps? Uh, Where do you think the future improvements in this area will come from? So, uh, yeah, this study is an illustration how Perhaps spatial resolution in conjunction also with this 
iterative reconstruction technique, which is here combined, may help to improve instant visualization, but we have to study all these aspects and in the future, uh, probably perfusion imaging to assess the hemodynamic significance uh, will be integrated into the evaluation protocol. Also, from the manufacturer's side, there is now uh, different stents which are more easy to evaluate, like biodegradable stents, which almost cause no CT artifacts anymore. So there are further developments on the patient side, manufacturers of CT and stents, which can help to improve this assessment, and uh, it will thereby develop into a real clinical application, hopefully. Well, thank you very much, Albert, for joining us. It was a pleasure speaking with you about this interesting paper. Thank you. Hi, this is Herb Kressel, editor of Radiology, and today I'm joined by Professor Songi Han, uh, from the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Uh, Dr. Hahn will be discussing a fascinating study uh, by uh, her colleagues and her on uh, hyperpolarized water as an MRI contrast agent, talking about feasibility of in vivo imaging in a rat model. Now, we normally don't have a lot of basic experimental studies for podcasts, but we thought this was such a novel and interesting piece of work that we thought our uh, listeners would be excited to learn more about it. So uh, welcome, Dr. Han. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Yes, thank you. I'm, I'm happy to uh, be here and explain uh, some of uh, our methods and uh, uh, potential applications of it. Great. Uh, why don't we start off and can you just explain to our listeners uh, what exactly is hyperpolarization? Yes. So hyperpolarization is a method to dramatically enhance magnetic resonance uh, signal. Of course, all of you know that MRI signal is really what is being used for imaging. However, always there is not enough signal sensitivity is a big problem. So it is a method by increasing the signal of the nuclear spin by many orders of magnitude, but by aligning the nuclear spin with the field that usually with just a magnetic field you cannot achieve, but there are other physical methods of achieving that. So my understanding is that you are dramatically increasing the field alignment, and as a result you have more nuclei excited and the signal uh, that you get can improve by orders of magnitude, is that correct? Exactly, but the, the really exciting aspect about it is that with currently man-made magnetic fields, the really high uh, polarization that we are aiming for cannot be achieved by just increasing the surrounding magnetic field. There are yes. limits to that by just using a field magnet. Right. So uh, there's been work actually several years and now there are some companies actually uh, begun clinical testing of uh, what are called DNP hyperpolarizers that would be adjacent to the magnet and that uh -huh. a number of different compounds can be hyperpolarized, but you used a somewhat different approach to hyperpolarization, something that you called overhauser hyperpolarization. Can you tell us a little about that and, uh, and how yes. it works? 
So uh, the common uh, approach to dynamic nuclear polarization, uh, i.e. DNP, is that we utilize electron spin that are much stronger uh, molecular level magnets, so to speak, than the nuclear spins that we use for imaging, and to transfer this highly aligned uh, polarization from the electron spins to the nuclear spins. Uh, what is different about the Overhauser DNP approach is that you can do so at ambient condition, at room temperature or at physiological temperature without going to very cold 2 Kelvin, 20 Kelvin or 100 Kelvin type cryogenic temperatures, which is what the current methodology that is commercial is relying upon. So this might make it more feasible in a clinical setting. You wouldn't have to have something very, very cold in which uh, the uh, to obtain the hyperpolarization. Is that right? Yes. It is both uh, uh, makes it feasible for certain applications, and of course there are limits. Right. So there are feasibility and limits both. The, the limitation is that the hyperpolarization that you can achieve is lower. The opportunity is that you can achieve hyperpolarization even if more modest, say 100-fold or 200-fold type enhancement. You can do it in water in, under physiological co condition without having to freeze your uh, sample of interest which means continuous flow applications are possible. Yeah, so uh, could you tell us a little bit more about uh, what you mean by continuous flow hyperpolarization? Yes, so the basic principle is, uh, as I mentioned, DNP does rely on electron spin to provide this polarization. So we have uh, functionalized beads with those electron spins in a in a system. Now water, which could be pure water or uh, saline water, is flowing over these beads. As this water interacts with these beads that are uh, labeled with the electron spins, the transfer happens, so water is getting hyperpolarized, and then it is being injected in situ into the uh, vein of, of a live uh, animal, in this case uh, of our study, so you can provide and deliver hyperpolarized uh, substances, in, in this case water, in continuous flow. I understand. Now, uh, one of the general concerns with hyperpolarization is the duration is fairly short. And how long would the uh, hyperpolarization under this continuous flow method, how long would it last? So this is exactly indeed a limit, but there's also an opportunity. So the limit is the polarization of any given batch would only last somewhere around one to uh, 10 seconds, depend depending on the environment. However, the commercial DNP approaches that you mentioned, which are very popular and have amazing opportunities, have very high enhancement, much longer lifetimes, of something like minutes or tens of seconds, mm -hmm. but it's a one shot. Now I mentioned our approach uses continuous flow delivery, so that's the opportunity. At, of, of any given batch, the lifetime may be short, but it is being delivered uh, in continuous mode, and especially because here we are talking about polarizing pure water, that at the moment of injection is completely chemical and radical free, so it's mm -hmm. pristine water or saline water, 
uh, that's the opportunity. Short lifetime, however, delivered in continuous flow, on demand, so to speak. Very good. So can you just briefly summarize uh, in the feasibility experiments you reported uh, in uh, the manuscript in our journal? What did you actually show? Uh, yes. So we have shown uh, on a, an MRI setting that we can uh, install our apparatus that we have that is entirely portable into the so-called fringe field of a very general MRI magnet. We set up this flow system, as I mentioned, and then we injected uh, the hyperpolarized water uh, that is being continuously produced into a uh, rat, uh, a live rat. Mm -hmm. And we have tested a few feasibility uh, um, studies. We have shown the highlight of our study was that we have uh, uh, administered continuously this hypopolarized water intravenously into our live rat, and have shown that you can lit up the rat's brain. Mm -hmm. This is really exciting because usually contrast agent or many of the substances wouldn't pass the blood-brain barrier. However, water obviously will freely pass the blood-brain barrier, so it was exciting to see uh, that with water, hypopolarized water, you could see contrast in the circulation in the brain. Uh, so vessel. water is a perfusion agent. Exactly. Uh, very, very exciting. Is it possible to uh, use other nuclei as well? Could you put other nuclei in the water and hyperpolarize them? In principle, yes. However, there is nothing as abundant uh, in our body as water. Yes. So that's really the opportunity. When we talk about chemical system and imaging of in vitro system, definitely. But when it comes to in vivo application, and that's really here the outlook or the exciting outlook of this, nothing can beat water. So mm -hmm. really indeed the objective of this approach is uh, imaging of uh, using water itself as a perfus perfusion contrast as opposed to injecting gadolinium or other right. contrast agent. It's the pure water that, that is being used itself as a contrast agent. And so, uh, you know, the circulation times are longer than a second, but presumably you could put it through a catheter uh, intraarterially and get very fine uh, perfusion data regionally. Absolutely, and I also should qualify this one second so when I said the circulation time or the lifetime is one to 10 seconds, it is the so-called relaxation uh, time. Yes. However, keep in mind that as you develop the technology and the enhancement level get higher, in fact, the higher the enhancement, even this lifetime can get prolonged. So I do believe with, uh, with feasible technology, 10 seconds, even 15 seconds would be possible. Okay. And we have shown already a little bit by going from room temperature water to, say, body temperature water, you can prolong this lifetime from a few to something like 10 uh, or many more seconds. So that's one. Very but exciting. indeed, yeah. And, but indeed, you're right. The application where we believe this has an opportunity is for catheter, but also external area, you know, under the skin. Is mm -hmm. definitely one possibility. A tumor that's accessible from the from you know from the external uh, mm -hmm. part, and of course catheter injection. I understand. And so we've talked about some of the potential uh, limitations. 
But it sounds like this is a, uh, uh, an exciting, feasible area to pursue. I believe so, and I also believe what we have shown is just a proof of principle. There are many uh, things in our tech, things that engineering can improve dramatically. So, for example, we just have shown that with using one so-called microwave cavity with a relatively simple filter system that we have seen this contrast in the brain of the rat. Mm -hmm. However, you can imagine having maybe several parallel microwave cavities put in, uh, put in series and using much more professional optimized uh, columns to increase the amount of polarization as well as the amount of polarized sample. So there are many ways how to increase the performance. And also there are many more applications that one can imagine uh, developing. Very, very exciting. Well, Dr. Han, we're running out of time, but I really want to thank you for joining us. This is a very uh, innovative work, and I uh, appreciate the opportunity to learn more about it. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much.